0: Before we get started, I want to personally invite you to join me for a live fintech leaders recording and happy hour with Stuart Sop, CEO and co-founder of Current, a multi-billion dollar fintech built in New York City. Join us at Barclays Rise, New York on Monday, October 16 to kick off New York Tech Week. You can visit the show notes on FinTech Leader Substack to find
1: the registration link. See you there. We decided that we wanted to be a global company from the get-go and, and then that had implications in Brazil, right? So first of all, all our documentation, all our payloads, everything is written in English. So yeah. even for Brazilian clients in the beginning, we only have Brazilian clients. Why do I have to train my team to speak English? Why do I need to see your guides in English? If you're growing, I don't know, 100% a year, and then you start growing 20% a year. That will change how you manage your business. That will change your perception because it's easy to be a manager where everyone's getting a promotion every three months. It's easier to be a manager when you know, the company only celebrates successes and doesn't have to learn from much failure.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to FinTech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early stage FinTech entrepreneurs in the US, Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about FinTech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Ricardo Joshua, CEO and co-founder of Pismo, a global tech company that builds banking and card solutions for digital banks and large financial institutions. Headquartered in Sao Paulo, Brazil, the company has operations in Latin America, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the U.S., and processes over $210 billion dollars in annual transaction volume. Importantly, back in June 2023, Visa announced a definitive agreement to acquire Pismo for $1 billion in cash, making it one of the largest fintech acquisitions announced this year worldwide, and certainly the largest one outside of the U.S. The transaction is still subject to regulatory approvals, so we couldn't talk that much about it. Bismo's investors include Redpoint Brazil, SoftBank, Amazon, and Accel. In this episode, we discuss from Brazil to the world, the importance of having a global mindset from day one, partnering with fintechs and large banks, how Pismo went from mostly fintech clients to selling to some of the largest banks in the world, building a modern system while still connecting to legacy technologies advice for company builders and leaders to navigate both great times and choppy weathers, and a lot more. Well, Ricardo, thanks for joining FinTech Leaders. And, and more importantly, thanks for opening your doors to your headquarters in Sao Paulo, where we're actually recording live in Brazil today. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to be talking. It's not often that you you meet a global fintech leader in in Latin America, but it's happening more and more, right? Uh, so some of my past guests include, for example, D-Local. That's another global company coming out of Latin America, and and so we need more like Pismo. Tell us a bit about the origins, Short worry, How did you get involved? How, how did you meet? all the co-founders, and, and, and then we're going to talk about you know the last close
1: to decade and, and all the good things that you've built. Time does fly. Well, you know, I, I've met my uh, co-founders about 25 years ago, and the first 15 years of those 25 years together at a company that I co-founded, another FinTech in Brazil, and we were left and sort of did our own separate things for, for a few years, and then Dani, who's now my co-founder and, and CTO, she... Travel After she left uh, the company that we used to work for, she used to work for after I left, she went on a trip to, to, to Silicon Valley, to, to California, visiting some you know, tech companies uh, back in 2014. I think tech was still sort of a novel thing. And you know she came back very excited saying, oh my God, and we're benchmarking yourselves and comparing yourselves to the incumbents, right? and, and sort of striving to become like incumbents more and more. But there's sort of this new generation on companies that kind of based. API enable uh, microservice space, you know, the technology is completely different. And she used to be, as a CTO of a former company, she used to be responsible for infrastructure. And part of her sleepless night, I guess uh, the important part of her sleepless nights were spent managing physical infrastructure and focusing on stuff that was very round the mill, so sort of very basic and prosaic, but still necessary. And she was very excited about the technology and and, and, and the possibilities. And we would tell the story, you know, quite often here to, to, to friends and, and 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 peers alike. And it wasn't a very obvious uh, decision for me to join initially. They said, well, you know, seems like uh, sort of a rehash of what we've done. But I think she had sort of a, 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 an ambition to do something much broader. And, and it's kind of said, listen, if, if we want to do this, we should look to the future, right? And at that point we were influenced in Brazil, not only us, but a lot of people were uh, paying a lot of attention uh, to the digital wallets in in China at that point. They came like, there's so many things that you can do with new technology that could change the payments landscape. At the same time, I knew that you had to build new stuff that still had to communicate with existing infrastructure and rails. I think that's a, a challenge that many innovators don't realize, right? You have to a large extent, to leverage existing stuff and or at least integrate with existing stuff in order to, to to grow new stuff in most cases. And so we built this company to use new technology, but more importantly to enable new technology while still being able to connect with sort of legacy technology as well. And when you look at how the company looks today versus the original
0: vision, yeah. how close aren't they and and and
1: you share about that initial vision and how you set out to build it. Yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll, there's a lot of hindsight thinking here that it's unavoidable, right? So I don't mind saying, and I, I tell this to people who ask you, the vision usually remains consistent, but even strategy changes, right? We had a view of the last enterprise uh, kind of business when we started out. Uh, we, we were thinking that we would enable mostly, you know, fintechs and new entrants through the market. But at the same time, we we realized early on that enterprise companies and comments had to change themselves. And these guys are still, even today, you know, after, you know, fintech has become a, a staple uh, thing, everyone, well, pretty much everyone and my grandma knows what the fintechs are, have heard about fintech at this point. Still, if you look at most markets incumbents are still largely the, big players in most markets.
0: Fintech uh, is still
1: 2% public revenue for financials. Yeah, so yeah, it, it's still yeah, it, it's still a very small piece of pie. So if you want to enact change and become a viable business, you have to cater to those uh, large companies as well. And I think we, today, if you look at our, our portfolio, we have many more feedback clients than we have incumbent clients. However, our revenue still comes you know, at a disproportionate level from income players, even when you, you get sort of a very uh, exciting and, and well-funded fintechs, these guys just, you know, find their foodie were so uh, grow only to where they need to be to to become viable businesses. So I think that that's the major change. I think we we were setting out to become a more agile as a customer basis, uh, sort of a Fintech basis, and now we have a lot of enterprise clients. I think that's the major, the step we didn't anticipate. I didn't think it was possible at, at that point. How was that initial
0: pitch when, when you went to your initial customers?
1: Why, when we were asking, ask you, why is this important? Yeah, well, you know, for Fintech clients, it was, everyone was uh, sort of preaching the same yeah. story, right, we were saying, listen, there is only so much you can do with customer experience and, you know, UX and UI you can create the most innovative app in the world. If you're still relying on sort of infrastructure that was built 30, 40 years ago, you're gonna find bottlenecks, you're gonna find problems And we had. We knew that even from some of the uh, incumbents that had, if you lived uh, in, in any major capital in the world at that point, most banks in 2015 or 16 already had large swaths of their headquarters, Yeah. You know, dedicated to agile squads to you know user experience customer centricity blah 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 and you know they had all the pin bags and you know uh, the people tables in one floor and uh, these guys would you know do a lot of stuff but when it came to sort of actually implementing those and rolling those out they would find that they were being bottlenecked by the infrastructure that they were uh, relying on so when you talk to, and even today, when you talk to a FinTech app, they don't want to sort with for infrastructure. They want to start with something new that is future-proof to, to some extent, at least. But increasingly, I think incumbents sort of realizing uh, that, well, and, and again, it's not like a, an insight. I think most incumbents felt the pain of living through that. It's just that it takes a while for them to equate the need of change with the risks involved in changing. So, we were lucky enough to be in a market to sort out in a market uh, in Brazil where uh, the challenges were really giving our time to the incumbents, right? And incumbents were concerned. So I think that that was, at that point, a very important juncture for us. So when you started
0: building, you, you've mentioned modern technology a few times. Yeah. When you started building, you had, you and your team had a choice, actually many choices, what technology to use, right? How was that initial decision that what gave you confidence that the technology you were
1: deciding to use was going to be the correct one? We did, to be honest, right? I think, you know, Dunno, of course, can have more elaborate uh, answers for that. But I-, I can tell that we had lived at that point and we were, uh, I think most of us, uh, approaching 40s so when we started out, we we're already at our 40s. So we had lived through many changes. And our first company was a challenger, challenging mainframe infrastructure, and replacing with the client-server their technology. So We knew that this was uh, something uh, that, that was happening, and we knew some of the things that we had suffered through that change, and we were trying to address those. And First of all, is how do you keep recycling more services? Because the only way to future-proof yourself is you have to kill the wrong uh, existing infrastructure over and over, right? So uh, at that point, we just wanted to make sure that we built existing sort of what was, at that point, the best technology available. Of course, it was public cloud microservices, but also, I think one of the appeals of API-enabled microservices was that most of the documentation for that was explicit in the payload, and I, I don't want to get too early here, but one of the problems we had with previous technologies was that when you had to change something, you had to excavate and find out what were the implications of changing something, and today. And where you have to rely on what the coders left as documentation for that, or even the product guys left as sort of functional documentation, and sometimes those wouldn't match, and sometimes that was not clear. And with smaller microservices, you have contained things that you could replace as long as they kept the contract with the outside components stable, and you could make sure that those communications were explicit, right? So the payloads were explicit. So I think those were some of the concerns we had early on, and we still spend a uh, Relevant chunk of our engineering structure to refactor existing API. So if you look at our squads today, they're all sort of the pizza-sized squads. We do lot. but importantly, we make sure that a significant portion of their time, usually uh, between twenty and forty percent, is spent refactoring existing functionality, it's not creating new stuff, not extending functionality, but sort of to do the technology for that existing function. So that, that's one of the ways we improve. And was your team, especially the tech team,
0: mostly local in Brazil, or did you hire internationally from day one?
1: No, I think you know when we started out. Well, it was four of us, of course, you know, the founders. Early on, we started with local talent, but at that point, I think we were starting to see some of the local talent being included by international. So, one of our engineers moved to Germany. The first, actually, one of the first architects we had moved to Munich or to Berlin. I think of Munich and then Berlin, and worked for us from there for a while, then, you know, got a better paying job for to point. But he was an important, you know, people that were sort of uh, aware of what was happening globally. So let's talk about the importance of a
0: composable core banking system. And I guess that that can be a segue to talk about your core products today, what Bismal offers today,
1: your bread and butter. Well, I think, you know, one of the ways we describe this is it's a anti-design thinking approach. So what we had for a very long time was we started with product description and what clients need mm-hmm. and go from there, mm-hmm. you know, all the way in, so from the outside in. We had a different approach for infrastructure that stated that we needed to start from first principles. So what is universal, right? And if you look at, and people ask us, oh, how can you manage to have clients and India, and Chile, and Brazil, and Argentina, and the U.S. are using the same platform, the same software code. Aren't there many sort of uh, different regulatory uh, differences and you know, localization uh, needs? And my answer at that point was not empirical. It became afterwards, but was that people assumed that because regulation is particular uh, to each country, but the underlying logic is always the same. So essentially, what you have is, and what we build ourselves, is a very abstract layer that has the universal components of not only you know, banking, but financial services in general. So it has a ledgering system for assets and liabilities, it has a transaction processing capability that moves balances around. You have an event driven uh, network that responds and reacts to the events. And you have an entity management system that creates accounts users, tokens, credit cards, debit cards, PIX tokens in Brazil, uh, UPI tokens, whatever form of associating a user, being a company or a person to that structure. So that's the underlying layer, and that's a very deliberate, universal layer. Everyone uses the same layer for every different set of products that we provide. Now, on top of that, you still have to connect to the existing world, new technologies, older technologies. in the case of Brazil, we still you know, pigs and, yeah, card rails and, you know, older painted rails, faster payments, you know, ACH and FedNow. So everything has to be available, but you need to connect those. But those shouldn't define how the system is designed. So, of course, if you look at, you know, most of the protocols for banking today, they were built 30, 40, 50 years ago. We still use them. This is pre-internet, certainly pre-smartphones, and in most cases, in all cases, in most cases, pre-internet. And you can use and communicate with those bills, but those shouldn't define how your system is built. And that's a very important uh, decision to make, I believe. So although we still have, if you look at your bank statement today, most places in the world, you will see very terse and sometimes confusing descriptions of what you did with short transactions, because this was built in most cases with Rails that had limitations in in, in bandwidth even, right? And, And you had to communicate through a, Phone line, copper line uh, that you know would only uh, carry that much data. But that doesn't mean that you should define your system by that. So if you want to embed you know, a, a live video capture of a transaction, in theory, you, you could write and stream 4K movies today every day. Is that a reality today? It's not. Do you do a lot of synchronous processing for multi factor authorizations? Not in most rails or pretty much uh, just in in, in closed-loop rails. However, your system should be ready for those kinds of of changes. So many changes will take a long time, but we believe that we should have a sort of an infrastructure layer that is prepared to connect with new technologies that we already know. It's not that this is technology for the future. It's technology that we know, but it's not implemented and rolled out yet. It's just like anything else, right? With TV components or chip components or stuff, the science is, way ahead of what actual manufacturer is able to do. The same thing happens with payments. It's just that it's not as visible. We already have and understand how things could be better from a scientific standpoint, if you, if you sort of excuse my, my sort of poetic freedom here. But that doesn't mean that that's the way it works today. So we have to be prepared for the science, but be connected with the actual engineering. Of the
0: land. It's as I say, the future is already here. It's just not evenly
1: distributed. Exactly, and then not roll out. I think you know it's it's probably in this particular case an apt description, which is we are still constrained by some of the bottlenecks of uh, uh, technology. I I've used many times this metaphor that I've heard you know from someone uh, back in the day. I used this in one twenty twenty last year, which is the width of roads that were defined by you know Roman chariots, defined as sort of the width of tunnels, and that restricts some of the components were rocket launching because, you know, we still have to ship components from place to place using trains and the trains will have the sort of the, the width of the tracks that were defined by this. So there are some constraints. Now, that doesn't mean that you should build your technology based on those constraints. You can, you know, live with those constraints as long as they exist. But tomorrow, if there's another way to sort of carry those, or you can sort of go through the course, or if you can sort of send to space, your technology should be able to leverage that capability. And one I'm guessing also one of the limitations of the legacy
0: systems is that they were not built for a global financial right. system, whereas you have been global almost from the get-go. You started in Brazil, but now you have offices in five countries. Sure. You have clients all over the world. How transportable, I guess, is your
1: technology from... Serving a customer in Brazil versus India versus US. Well, we have we have a very good deal on that because we don't, right? We don't need to transport because we don't build the infrastructure ourselves, uh, unlike our previous so So we and we don't have to deploy anything. So as long as there is a public cloud provider in the country, and that, that is a limitation, by the way, for some geographies, but. As long as there are uh, uh, public cloud providers, and we had believed we'll from day one, and again, this is not a controversial position that cloud would eventually take over infrastructure because you know, it just makes sense. But as long as they are, it's just a play button. It's 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 a completely abstract infrastructure. It, it doesn't matter. So if we need to set up as we do now, you know, in, in their countries uh, or even with the TTS uh, deal from C, you know, it's going to be dozens and dozens of countries. Whenever you need to set up an infrastructure display button and set up the infrastructure to a cloud provider. What implications
0: did that have for the company going global? Because all of a sudden you have regional hands, all of a sudden you have different culture, maybe,
1: maybe not. How did you approach it? Yeah, it's funny they say all of a sudden, it it takes a very long time. I mean, we decided that we wanted to be a global company from the get-go and and then that had implications in result, right? So first of all, all our documentation, all our payloads, everything is written in English. So yeah. even for Brazilian clients in the beginning, said, oh, "We only have Brazilian clients. Why do I have to train my team to speak English? Why do I need to see your guides in English? And why does the payload for Pix says recipient instead of recipient or whatever you know the word in Portuguese is for that?" And we uh, said, listen, you already have to leverage existing technology from other countries. And the, the lingua franca today is English. So you need to learn English. If you don't, you won't be able to use your technology anyways, because you will need other components that are not provided by ourselves. So that, that was the first one. Now, between that and actually the and having clients, which is important, abroad was it was a very long journey. First, we had to make sure that we had a stable and proven product to go abroad, because there's there's this, you know, the zip code text, right? You know, when you go over a new country, people will know you, blah blah. blah. Uh, of course, we had the luck and and, and the fortune of meaning uh, Michelle, who's now our CEO for international expansion, who was at that point a McKinsey partner working for financial service, but had previously worked for Citibank and Barclays deploying a global infrastructure, and he knew, you know, what were the, the needs and some pains that the clients globally uh, had, and also he knew people, right? That that also is 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 important, and then you know to the first client, it's it's still tough today. You know, we, when you go to a new market, people in general are risk-averse. You probably know of the risk-averse sort of bias that most people have. But for financial institutions, that bias is, you know, taken to the end level, right? You don't want to sort of experiment with other people's money, right? Neither do we. So even though you're an innovative company or here, our first pillar here within the company is total trust, non-negotiable, non-negotiable. We're dealing, just to give you a sense of what we're doing today, probably more now, but, you know, about $210 billion a year in, in transaction volume, And if you, you can pass up, right? And, and this is just the beginning, right? We're, we're rolling out large operations. It's going to grow exponentially in the next few years. And you have to know the responsibility that that represents. So, I mean, you know, culturally, I, 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 I've said this before. I don't want the idea that we are culturally different. If you even travel today as a, as a, some regular person, you know the world is very connected. You go to a small town in or Brazil, you will see barbershops look pretty much the same today, which is probably a trend from TikTok. So people watch the same movies, and you know for a while now, and and, and sort of there are of course uh, you know similar cultural characteristics, but I think largely from a entrepreneurial standpoint. There's more, you know, laws aversion, more risk, sort of alignment, but in general, you know, we have people that are hungry. It's changing the U.S. and UK. We have our offices in the UK. If you talk in English, you know, language aside, which is I think the biggest barrier that we have, if people speak, you are know, good enough English, if you go a happy hour, I'm sure, you know, if you close your eyes, maybe because you know, it might be, you know, that some ethnicity factor might sort of give you clues, but outside of that, and even that, you struggle. Gonna make you uh, miss the mark, but if you look around the table, if you talk to different people, I I'm pretty sure you couldn't tell who's British or who's Indian or who's Brazilian or who's uh, Singaporean. I don't know. I don't like the idea. I think there's so much more that you know sets us that keeps us together than than, than sets us apart, right? The yeah, similarities are much more important than the differences. I think the
0: human ambition is universal, right? right? Whatever you learn, you mentioned. Some key hires, to show Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's been oh, a lot more. Yeah, of course. What yeah. have you learned about bringing talent home?
1: Well, I think, you know, we had, I think, a very fortunate fortuitous, I guess, because it was a very difficult time for the world, you know, but, the, you know, growing during the pandemic, we started the pandemic with 40 employees. We're now 500 and something. But we grew in the first year of the pandemic almost five times. And doing that during the pandemic, you know, the headquarters sort of uh, complex, right, where, you know, all you're in the headquarters and sort of get to be with, you know, most of the executives. And now you're, you know, in one of the peripheral offices. That didn't happen because everyone was communicating through uh, Zoom anyways. So people didn't have privileged access to solve, to other executives, vice versa. So I think that helped a lot. And, and you now see that, you know, some squads have people working in India and Brazil. We're in the same squad, people in India, Australia, 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 the UK. And I don't remember last time I heard you know, some saying, oh my God, you know, this guy, is, it's just part of the team, you know, uh, as long as they communicate. Again, the only barrier is English, right, which, which is uh, sometimes a problem. But most of our countries outside Brazil are English-speaking. People in Brazil are improving their English, although it's it's still not as proficient as, as we'd like in, in most cases that we wouldn't accompany people uh, to course have to speak a decent level of English.
0: You mentioned the pandemic. Dizmo has been around during some interesting times. Yeah. Bear markets, bull markets. There's founders tuning in, there's fintech operators tuning in. What where, where are you going
1: through at least a tech bear market? Yeah, no. What does that represent for the industry? I have this very clear understanding that managing something during a bull market, or even within the, the company, you, you know, forget about the outside market, managing uh, fast growing company is no different than managing a slow growing company. And managing a bull market is much different than managing a bear market. You tend to over congratulate yourself when you're growing something, uh, either because of market conditions or because of your own talent. I had that experience. And then when it changes, it doesn't even have to sort of flip sides. If you're growing, I don't know, 100% a year, and then you start growing 20% a year, that will change how you manage your business. That will change your perception because it's easy to be a manager where everyone's getting a promotion every three months. It's easier to be a manager when you know, the company only celebrates successes and doesn't have to learn from much failure. Now, when you have a downturn in market, or a downturn within the company, yeah, even regardless of the outside market. It requires a different set of capabilities. I think, you know, having lived through those in my life, now when I joined my first job as an investment banker, the first year was amazing. And I said, oh God, this culture is brilliant. You know, how come the world is not like this? And then, you know, the Russian crisis came in, in 97, and then the, you know, the, the Asian markets crisis. And so, oh, now I see <laughs> why the world isn't all over the work. It, it doesn't mean that it's not a, a great proposition. It's just that it will change how efficient it is for different markets. So, I think mean, you know, it, it takes some sort of leap of faith to become an entrepreneur. You know, people say that, and it's true. And you have to defy odds. And you need some level of boldness that is above and beyond what rational, <laughs> you know, expectations would be. But, you know, uh, if you want to build an enduring company, you, you, you got TR on your funnel, right? Because when push comes to shove, it's going to be the quality you of your service. It's going to be, you know, it doesn't matter if you prove 200%, if your clients are dissatisfied, for example, um, you get died soon. And anyways, it's just a matter of time. And another side of,
0: I guess, company survivorship is your ability to fundraise. Yeah, right. At least at the very beginning. Then obviously you kept on to become great kiva and profit. But at the beginning, venture backable. Yeah, businesses. It's it's
1: crucial to have that ability to fundraise. Take us through that journey. Well, we were fortunate again because we were in the sort of the very first days of the growth of venture capital in Brazil, in particular. But I guess in the world, you are sense. So 2014 was. The or 15, the, the, the time years of uh, fundraising, uh, we got all the way to 2021 where you had crazy evaluation and stuff, but you sort of started there in the Marches. And, and we were fortunate to have very um, good backers. And at that point, we had opportunities to raise at better valuations from less, I guess, institutional sound sources or connected sources. And I think, you know, having smart people around, but also people who have very good connections, people that also provide credentials, you know, let's not forget that uh, the world uses credentials as, as shorthand for a lot of stuff, right? People, if you come to the table with sort of a credible backer, people will sort of give you some credit for that. And then, you know, we shouldn't sort of, I guess, look at this as a bad thing. You know, it, it is it is what it is, as, as, as it is, you know, we went to NBA at a... At a Siege college, you know it. It does make a difference, right? Because you know they've done some work in sifting through candidates and you know finding you that is not shorthand to you. And when you show your credentials, it does help. It doesn't mean that credentials are perfect, but they do have a, a role in, in this process. So I think you know choosing the right paper is very important. And there is a lot of talk of well, you know, funds will help you in operation. Everyone will say, well, we're strategic. Will Help you, you know, build this, blah blah. But I think you know one of the things that we wanted is some some of that had you know relevant credentials, and also we talked to at that point to entrepreneurs who had had problems with their companies, companies that were written off from the fund. Mm. For example, that that's important, right? Because again, everyone will behave a certain way when things are going well. You want to know how they will behave. So the the, the latest status is how they will behave when things uh, sort of turn sideways and. And that was an important thing. Luckily, we didn't uh, go through any crisis. But you know, it, it's important. I think evaluation for so people who are looking to ratings, how your funder will behave if you if you go through difficult times. Will they sort of rush you aside and say, "Well, you know, I'm focused on on something that sort of has better chances of surviving," or will they back you up and go through those hard times?
0: Yeah. And and, and by the way, your fundraising journey, you know, it, it's. It's still a process, right? And then and congratulations. I know you guys announced the transaction, that I, I know it's, it's currently being on the, the acquisition of Visa. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a,
1: a global example, exactly. not just a, a regional and, and And so that's massive progression. Yeah, we're excited. Again, it, it's been in a, a regulatory approval, but we believe that this is a, a very, for us, a, a very exciting opportunity to... Accelerate our, our presence global, right? And, and, and as I said, you know, financial services is something that people don't take lightly. So having the half top one of the largest financial companies in the world is certainly would, would be interesting for us.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do a follow-up episode to talk more about it, and in- I'll be Yeah. So before I let you go, I know that you have a great relationship with your co-founders, and you're a team of four. And if you study entrepreneurship, most of the great companies, they're usually a team of two, right? But that's not always the case, of course. Tell us a bit of a, of a bad
1: co-founder relationship. Well, you know, again, again, I think one of the main things here is that we, we sort of had worked together, the four of us, for fair, I'm sorry, before we jive here. and I wanted to make sure that everyone had skin gain when it started, because, you know, early days tough, right? You have to, you know, spend your own money developing the business. You have, you know, at least, even before seeing, right, you have to show something for it, right? You know, people are not usually buying PowerPoint, so you need to sort of work it out, you know, provide your time, which is important, sometimes your money, but which was our case. So, be, up, we need to be with picked Up and Trusted. And also, you know, I think they're, you know, having more together in different roles, so of the complementarity of our skill sets. And I think we had an interesting dynamic, and I think, you know, regardless of how many founders you were, and I, I think, you know, being a single father is something for me, and I can say this, I, I would never have to, uh, to do what I've done so far, or a fraction of it, if I were alone. I, I, I have zero doubts about this, because you need support. There will be, you know, moments of doubt, moments of uh, exhaustion, even, you know, moments of, and you need someone to help you out and someone to is important someone who can actually challenge you with to respect and, and and trust. And I think you know, you need this dynamic, right? Uh so you know, we have different tensions here all the time. I think that's more important than number two, right? We need someone who's more connected to the town and sort of making things sort of happen and focus on execution. But we also need someone who's headed as closer to the cloud and you know so looking at the big picture and, and and pushing forward and, and, and doing sometimes uh, taking more risks than the rest. So, you know, I think the balance is more important than the number of people. And, and I know you were
0: involved with Endeavor. I guess I'm guessing first at someone being mentored. Yeah.
1: And now how, yeah. Do you also enjoy mentoring future generations of founders? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, we, 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 wanted to give back uh, to the community. I think everyone does. It's, it's, it's a very net cousin for mentors and for mentor right? So it's, you know being able to talk to smart people that are sort of uh, because it takes you know you yourself and or you're said you know it's right. It takes a very special type of temperament to take on the risk of you know leaving a corporate job or corporate you know path and, and and sort of starting with a blank page. It's it's frightening and it's it's to see other people doing that all the time. And, and, it, and it's humbling in essence I think that's very important. So it gets you and jaunted its long, long, well you know, I remember how it was when we saw it, right? Again, I told you in the beginning of the podcast, you know, we we tend to do a lot of hindsight thinking and, oh, yeah, I knew it, right? You did, probably uh, didn't know as much as you did. So, yeah, it's, it's a great uh, thing to be able to. And I even mentoring is probably too to where you're just having conversations with the people in any way we can.
0: Yeah. Well, Ricardo, thanks for being a, a global example to you and, and your team. Out of Latin America, we we need more of those. And thank you for sharing your story. No doubt, there's going to be a lot of interest, and and hopefully, you get more entrepreneurs that reach out to you for a mentor or questions.
1: About that It'd be a pleasure. Always brief talking to you, God. Thank you
0: very much. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. Great episode with Ricardo, CEO of Bismo. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. And once again, I hope you join our live FinTech Leaders recording and happy hour on October 16 with Stuart Soft. CEO and co-founder of Current. You can find the registration link in the show notes on Fintech Leaders Substack. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armas.